Take your Bible now, would you, and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Thank you, Duane. I do want to ask you, like Duane just asked you, to remember to pray um, for this, for this need in our church. If you're new with us and you haven't got a clue what that was about, um, let me just tell you that we decided some sometime last year that the time has come um, for me to yield the role as pastor teacher here to a, a new man, a younger man who will stand in this place, lead the church, preach the word, uh, love the people, and be a strong leader for Christ. So we're, we're now looking for that guy. And so I ask you, you know, we need God to show us. So you're going to need to listen to this guy a lot. So if I was you, I'd pray. <laughs> right? All right? So seriously, and we're depending on him. God to work through him in the life of our church. So I hope that you will actually make a note to yourself and not just say that you're, you will pray, but actually pray. Now I'm going to ask you the question, how many of you have been praying for this? Good. Right. That blesses me. God have mercy on the rest of your sin-sick souls. <laughs> no, seriously, pray for this, would you? So, And I told you um, a few weeks ago that we would give you an update on what we, as when I say we, I mean Carolyn and me, um, what do we think God is leading us to do? So I want, I want to tell you that uh, we have made a decision about what we're going to pursue. And let me just give you a, a brief picture of it. And then I want to talk to you at some point in time in the near future about it, too. We're making application to a mission organization called Global Training Network. Um, what we really want to do is we want to invest the next years of our life in a threefold ministry. Always three, of course. Um, the first is we we really want to go to some places in the world where pastors and church leaders, particularly pastors, have little or no encouragement, which is true so many places in the world. This is a burden that I believe God's put on my heart that I, I just want to invest whatever years I have in doing as much of that as possible. Um, I want to help my brothers in Christ around the world who are suffering for Christ and have so little input while I have had so much and. So we want to invest in that. Uh, the other thing I want to do is I really, we really want to invest in the younger generation of church leaders that are coming up. Um, and, and I'm hoping that God will give me an opportunity to do some mentoring and coaching. I'm particularly burdened about um, the younger generation of preachers, particularly about teaching the Word of God. And I want to just say to you, I have obviously I have some a bent that direction. And I deeply believe that the Church of Jesus Christ and our nation needs preachers who will preach the Word. So I want to try to help as much as I can uh, to encourage and help and mentor and coach. And then, of course, somewhere along the line, I hope that God will open a door up for us to continue to preach and teach and love the Church. So there's the threefold ministry. We're going to have to actually raise our support, which will be a real interesting experience for us. I've helped a whole bunch of other people know how to do that, but I've never had to do it myself. So uh, we'd encourage you to ask you to pray for us about that. Um, I actually have two trips that I've committed to this year. One is in August. I'm going to be gone for several weeks to the south part of Africa, to the countries of Zambia and Botswana and Namibia. And um, we're going to be doing pastor training in about seven cities, I think. So. And then we have a team from Cedar Mill that's going to India, to Dehradun, the north part of India, in November. And I'm going along with that team. There's a conference there, and we get to encourage some of those pastors and church planters there. That will be a great privilege. I, I personally regard, regard it, would, be, would regard as a great privilege to be part of our church family's missionary team. 
So we're asking our World Outreach team to consider us. And so if you know anybody on the World Outreach team, will you put in a good word for us? Um, and we're also asking our elders to lay hands on us and commission us to this ministry. Um, it will be a great privilege to be part of that team if God so wills. So if, you're asking, if you wonder, well, when is this going to happen and when will you leave and when will the new guy come? That's what we want you to pray about. We don't know yet. And uh, we have planned for this whole process to uh, be done at least... Uh, by a year from now. It could be happen much sooner, and we'll figure out what we're going to do then. So pray for us for wisdom. And most of all, we pray for this God to send this guy. Um, he already knows who he is. Uh, God knows who he is. And so we're asking him to tell us. So, okay, you have your Bibles? Ephesians chapter 4. Um, this is just an amazing place in the Word of God. Um, a few weeks ago, Matt... Um, led us in the transition in the book of Ephesians where we made the transition from the first three chapters that talk about the great riches and blessing that God's given to us in Christ. That a person is a follower, a Christian, uh, if someone who is in Christ and Christ is in them. And when that happens, um, then you begin to realize that God has blessed us with, with spiritual blessings long before we ever knew. And the first three chapters are really all about those blessings, some of the deepest truth in the Word of God is in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. It is really the doctrinal depth of what it is that God has given to us by His grace in Christ. It's an amazing place in the Word of God. And then in chapter 4, where Matt did this transition with us, if you have your Bible open, you can look at chapter 4, verse 1, then begins a transition, if you will, between primarily what some people call the doctrinal position, doctrinal or positional truth in Jesus Christ to some, what some people call more practical. Of course, there's doctrine in chapters 4, 5, and 6, and there's practical in chapters 1, 2, and 3, but generally it's divided into those two categories, or two groups, if you will, the, the doctrinal gifts of God in Christ, and now this how we going to live it out and the point that paul is making i think in the way he's designed this is if god has done all of this for in for us in christ then don't you want to live like it and so i lay that on you now don't you want to live like it if christ has done this for you if he has loved you before you ever knew if he has placed you in Christ, if he's redeemed you, if he's given you his Holy Spirit, if, he, if he's forgiven your sin, if he's made you part of the body of Christ, if he's brought you together in the community of God's people, if he's made you a saint, if he's done all this for you, given the very righteousness of his Son to you, then don't you want to live like it? And of course the problem is, is that we're not sure exactly what does that mean, how, how do you live like it. And so now Paul, in these verses, is now going to get so incredibly practical. He's going to get right down to where we live day by day. And we're going to discover even in the verses this, this morning that this is really all about relationships. It's not, it's not about holiness in isolation. One of our problems, I think, is maybe we were, we were influenced by these, by people who have said, you know, if you really want to be holy, then you've got to go away and join a group of people or maybe go live alone in a cave and contemplate God or something. And if you're really alone, then you can be more holy. And the Bible doesn't ever say anything like that to us. In fact, the whole concept of holiness is really all about holiness in relationships. It's about holiness in community. It's about holiness in our relationships with people. You cannot be good apart from people. It is by our relationships with people that we know what goodness is and what holiness is and how it acts. 
And so in these verses we're going to look at this morning, Paul tells us, I think, six things in a sequence. Boom, 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 boom. Like, put off the old and now put on the new one. This is what I mean in these practical terms. And then he's going to summarize it with a seventh one that is like all-encompassing. Imitate God, if you can imagine that. And somewhere right in the middle, he's going to say, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And of course, if we're ever going to live like he wants us to live, we're going to have to depend upon the Spirit of God in the same way we depended upon the Spirit of God for salvation in the first place. So if I'm ever going to act like he wants me to act, if I'm ever going to really put away particularly fleshly things, I'm going to have to depend upon the Spirit of God and not grieve the Spirit of God. And what's about to happen to you this morning is if you will open yourself up to this, if you will listen Not to my words, but for what the Holy Spirit will say to you. I promise you God will say something to you about your life. I promise you He will. And if you're like me, you'll be convicted about one or more of these things. And you will see a weakness in you. And perhaps you will see that you're living like the old. And you need to take it off, like Andrew talked about, and put on the new. Are you with me? So when this happens to you, now when you hear not just my word, but when you hear the Spirit of God whisper to you, yes, you, about that, don't grieve him. Don't push him away. Don't reject him. Accept what he says to you and be willing to act upon it. Are you with me? Let's ask him to do that. And then, Father, we ask that your Spirit would have free reign and rule in our minds and our hearts in these minutes. I pray for your people here. Lord, will you open us up to the truth? Will you help us to focus and submit? Will you help us to hear your words more than mine? And then when you speak, Lord, will you help us to obey and live that we might be the kind of people and live the kind of way that you want for the glory of Christ in the world. Amen. The first one is in verse 25. Don't tell lies, speak truth. Don't tell lies, speak truth. It's quite a simple, actually. Each one of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we we are all members of one body. He, He puts that thing in there that we all belong to each other. We're members of one body, so... That's one of the primary reasons why you you don't say something that's false. You don't lie. Colossians 3.9 says it more blunt. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self or literally your old man with its practices. Paul is simply saying, don't lie. Now, some of you might be thinking, I don't lie, so this doesn't apply to me. Yeah, maybe so. You exaggerate? Told you a thousand times not to exaggerate. Right? I mean, we just have all kinds of ways of deception. And Paul is saying, look, this is part of the old way. This is part of the old life. This is part of the world system. The world system is, frankly, just fine with a little bit of lying, or even a lot of lying. And by the way, this is what the evil one stirs up, too. In John eight forty four, Jesus said, he is a liar and the father of lies. He stirs up lies. He loves lying. This is part of the old way. Paul's saying, look, lying, falsehood is is part of the, it's it's a contradiction to who you are. I mean, don't you want to be honest? Don't you want to be truthful? Don't you want to be, quote, authentic? Don't you want to be real? Don't don't you want transparency, truthfulness? How can you do this if you're lying, if you're deceiving people? 
truthfulness is a characteristic of those who follow Jesus. Jesus is, he came, remember John 1.14, he came and he was full of grace and truth. He lived truth, grace. Truth wrapped in grace, but truth. He told, he never lied. He never exaggerated. He never shaded the truth. He never twisted the facts. He never said something to make himself look better. He just told the truth. He's full of truth. What about you? Convicted about that one? You lying to anybody? You know, if you really want to destroy a community or destroy a relationship or destroy a family, just start lying. It'll do it. Sooner or later, you'll ruin it. Simply by dishonesty, by lying. So how you doing? Don't tell lies. Speak the truth. Second one is in verse 26 and 27. We could call it a sinless kind of anger. A sinless kind of anger. In your anger, do not sin. That's a quote from Psalm 4.4 where, where it more literally says, Be angry and do not sin. Be angry and don't sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Maybe we'll drill down a little deeper on this one. It seems like from saying this, in your anger, do not sin, that, that Paul is saying there is a sinless kind of anger. And that is what the Bible actually teaches. There is an anger that is holy. There's an anger that's righteous. There's an anger that's acceptable to the, to the saint. In fact, it's expected, I think. God has anger. The Bible's pretty clear about that. The wrath of God. You've heard that. Some of us grew up in, in hearing that word again and again and again. I don't know what you, what you think when you hear the wrath of God. I used to think as a child, I was terrified by that. And I always used to think that the wrath of God is all about God flying off the handle and killing people. You know, and I thought, gee. But then when you read the Bible, what you discover is that God is long-suffering and slow to anger, and He is patient and kind. And then you begin to understand that the whole definition of wrath is not a flying off the handle, losing your temper kind of thing. That's human. But the wrath of God is, is, you could define it as something like the steady opposition of the heart and intent of God against that which opposes Him. That God knows what's best for his people. He knows what's best for the world. And when the world rejects him and when sin rejects and opposes him, then the wrath of God flows like a a hurricane against that opposition to God. So the wrath of God is something that is a holy, righteous thing. You cannot rightfully and biblically accuse God's character because he has wrath. He has a holy wrath. Jesus was angry. Doesn't say it a lot, but in more than one time you, you see that Jesus, yeah, he was angry. One of the primary places I think about is in Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, um, Jesus was with a group of people and there was a man who desperately needed to be healed. And Jesus wanted to heal him. And it was the Sabbath day and, and, and the scripture says that there was a group of people who just wanted him to do it because now he's going to give him give them a pretense to accuse him and hopefully put him in prison and maybe even have him killed because he because he betrayed the Sabbath, because he disobeyed the Sabbath. Their motivation was heal him. Yeah, Jesus, heal him and we'll get you. And when you read Mark chapter 3, verse 5, it reads like this. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Jesus was mad. 
I hope your, your view of Jesus allows him to be mad sometimes, but a holy, righteous anger. He looked at them. He was angry at their lack of compassion, their, their hypocrisy, the fact that they were plotting against him, the fact that they cared more about trying to do away with him because of a power struggle than they cared about the need of the man. It made him angry. Our Savior got angry, but a holy, righteous, pure anger. In John chapter 2 and some of the other Gospels, it talks about Jesus cleansing the temple. You remember that? One, one Gospel says he actually made a whip and he overturned the money changers' table. Remember, they were, they were polluting the whole temple courtyard and they were making money off the sacrifices and it was just this incredible hypocrisy and, and love of money and power. And, you know, the whole religious structure had been just polluted by this. And Jesus went into the temple and he turned the money changers over and he drove out the animals. I mean, it was just like chaos there. And it doesn't ever actually say he was angry. But I can't imagine him doing this without some anger. I don't know. You can ask him when you get there. Um, the scripture says the disciples saw this happen. And they, they remembered Psalm 69 verse 9 that says, Zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal. There's a word we don't use very much. Zeal. It's an Old Testament word. The word zeal really has to do with usually a two-sided thing, like a coin that has two sides. On one side is anger against that which betrays and dishonors God. On the other side is passion for what God wants to do. Zeal. Many of you have zeal. Think about the ministry that God's called you to, the thing that breaks your heart, the thing that you've given yourself to because there's such great need and people are so broken and you have a zeal for that. And, and probably you have a great passion to try to fix this, to try to do what you can to bring healing and strength. And it's one of the greatest things in the world when God gives you a zeal for something. And on the flip side of that coin, uh, on the flip side of your passion to do something, you probably have an anger about the abuse and the hurt and the violence and the, and the suffering, don't you? And you want, it, you want God to use you somehow. Zeal is a great thing. That's a holy, righteous kind of anger that's combined together with passion for God's good. So there is an anger that is consistent with Christ-likeness. But, having said all that, the Bible warns against human anger again and again and again. The wrath of man does not accomplish the purposes of God. Because usually our anger is not about a holy kind of thing. It's not usually even about a passion for God. I don't know about you, but usually my anger is all about me. And you've hurt me, you've offended me, or I'm frustrated. It's not working out like I wanted to, you know, and so I'm mad. Anger is a dangerous thing because of that. It's almost always destructive. It's almost always a self-centered emotion. Not always, but so often. And I don't, maybe I'm different, but usually my anger is directed at someone. Right? It's like somebody did that. You know, and I'm hurt by it. I'm, I've been rejected. I've been offended. I'm frustrated. So many times anger, human anger is a quick reaction to something. Circumstances or someone. And again, almost always self-centered. Very seldom is our anger wrapped around with patience and very... Careful. Almost always it's a fleshly kind of emotion. It's very difficult for us to be angry and not sin. 
Because anger so many times leads right into more sin. and It stirs it up. And that's why the Bible, when it talks about human anger, almost always, when it speaks of anger, gives limits. It says, look, be careful about your anger. And he, right here in this text, there are three limits that Paul puts on human anger. The first is, do not sin. Right? In your anger, do not sin. The second limit is, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. In other words, deal with it and don't go to bed with it. And the other thing is, don't give the devil a foothold. Don't sin. Does your anger lead to sin? So many times, anger leads to, I'm mad and so I'm going to tell you about it. Or I'm going to tell somebody else about it. It's called gossip. I slander somebody else because I'm mad at them. Or I plot some kind of retaliation. You know, it leads to more sin. Or anger continues into tomorrow, right? Which leads to more bitterness in me. What happens to you when you go to bed angry? Do you do what I do? You sit there and get more angry? You think about it longer? You stir, stew about it? It sort of gets bigger in your mind, right? My mind kind of enlarges it. I begin thinking, what I should have said was, here's what I should have done. Next time, I will. I'm pushing off dealing with the actual problem, right? I'm pushing it off. I'm, not, I'm, you know, I'm actually tolerating this thing, this self-centered anger. I don't even think about how to overcome evil with good, which is what the Bible teaches us, Romans 12, 21. Overcome evil with good. Don't let evil overcome you, but overcome evil with good. And, you know, and what I'm doing then is I'm just... I'm letting the sun go down in my anger. I'm tolerating. And, and perhaps the worst thing of all is that I'm training myself not to deal with my anger. I'm training myself that it's okay. I tolerate it as acceptable. My dad was angry a lot. He used to say, yeah, I know I have an anger problem, but I'm Irish, you know. <laughs> the Irish all get mad. My older brother did some genealogical research and he brought it to my dad and told him we're not Irish at all. <laughs> Which really made him mad. <laughs> so I grew up in a household where my dad was angry a lot and I, I thought of it as, well, this is, this is what a man does. Are you listening, fathers? So I tolerated that myself, and I developed a habit of anger. Spent a few years in the Marine Corps. That stirred it up even more. My friends, it's taken me decades of my life to overcome this, and I'm not there yet. The reality is that anger, the flesh just enjoys anger. You know, it's like gas, the flesh, you know. And the world thinks it's really normal. And the devil just loves it and stirs the world, the flesh, and the devil, all the enemies that we battle, anger. But forgiveness and letting it go, this is what God calls us to. Not becoming bitter. You keep hold on to this, you'll become bitter. Not increasing the problem. I ask you, in your anger, do you sin? And do you let the sun go down on your anger? Husbands and wives, listen to me. This is one of the best words of counsel for a marriage. 
don't let the sun go. Don't go to bed angry. Stay up all stinking night if you have to. With children and parents, shouldn't this be resolved before you go to bed? My friends, this is very wise counsel for us. The question is whether or not we will receive it and obey. Third thing, verse 28. No stealing, but work to share. No stealing. Don't steal. Pretty simple. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. This is the eighth of the tenth commandments, too. Thou shalt not steal. Stealing is simply taking something that does not belong to you. You can do it from the government. You can do it from your parents. You can do it from your friends. You can do it. You, know, you can do it from your neighbor. You can. You can do it. You know, it's it's like finding something before it's lost. <laughs> the word of Paul is simply steal no longer. So the point is, if you're stealing anything, stop it. Stop it. It's a sin. Don't do it. Stealing exposes something about us, though. Like if, if you have a habit, if you're do, if you, yeah, if you're cheating the government on your taxes, it exposes something about you. What does it expose? Well, you're mad at the government. One thing. It's, you know, this whole stealing thing exposes a dishonesty in us. Like you can't steal and be real honest about it. Have you noticed this? Hey, I want to tell all my friends how, how I'm stealing stuff lately. Right? We don't do that, right? We hide this. It's about deception. It reveals usually some kind of greed, some kind of thing that we want more. Uh, it so often exposes the dependence upon money or stuff or things or what money will buy. It's incompatible with the new life in Christ. And that's what Paul's saying. Look, if you're stealing, stop it. Don't do it. But then he talks about work. Have you noticed this? And this is very, this is very different. Paul surprises us with his reason for working. If somebody asked you, why do you work? You would say, well, I work in order to provide my own needs, and I work in order to provide my family's needs. But Paul gives another twist here. It's not like he's saying you don't work to meet your needs or to meet your family's needs. But do you notice what he's saying here? But work with, your, with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Hmm, that's different. Why do Americans work? We meet our own needs. We also work to... Here it comes. Improve our lifestyle. Right? Improve our lifestyle. That's a really nice way of saying I'm totally self-focused. Improve my lifestyle. And whatever more I get, I'm going to focus on making myself more comfortable and having more of the stuff that I want. And if my income goes up, I'll spend more of my income on myself. I mean, after all, I mean, our house hasn't been remodeled for 25, 30 years. So we have to, here comes the word, update it. Why do we update it? Because we can, right? We'll even go in debt to update it. Or we're a little frustrated with each other, so we'll go shopping. Isn't it fascinating how we're just, I mean, why do people work? So many people work because of the American dream. And the American dream seems to be saying to us, look, your security and your happiness is going to be all about accumulation and security and money. And, and the word of God comes in and just undercuts this whole thing and says, look, 
Look, if you're stealing, don't steal anymore. And when you work, one of the primary purposes of work is to be able to do something for those in need. Paul is saying, don't steal, work, but work to give, not work to accumulate. I don't know about you, but I find this very convicting. That's too convicting. Let's go on. Um, Fourth one, a new kind of talking. Verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Speech is a wonderful gift from God. Think about it for a minute. It is what separates us from the animal kingdom. Animals grunt and cry and scream and shriek and all kinds of things. They make all kinds of things. They don't speak. Whatever anybody else is saying to you, your cat is not a member of your family. Don't get me started. Cats, can you... Anyway, okay. So, even your dog. I like dogs. So... Look, speech is what separates us, right? This is a gift from God. God talks and we talk. Think about it. This is what part of what it means to be made in His image, to have the ability to, to talk, to communicate, to actually do speech, to do good or to do harm with our mouths. And Paul is saying, look, part of your new life in Christ is you don't use your mouth for evil. You use your mouth for good. It is a great power, your speech. Think about it. When's the last, has it been very long since you really hurt somebody by what you said? It might have been this morning. I mean, right? It's so easy for us to do that. Don't use your mouth for evil, but use it for good. That's why the Bible says, you know, is trying to teach us, look, you've got to guard your talk. You've got to watch what you say. You need to control your tongue. James says your tongue is like a flame of fire. It'll set a forest fire going. So you need to exchange bad talk for good talk. We need the speech of the new life, right? And, and Paul says, the NIV translates the word, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Unwholesome. I, I don't know what you think about the word wholesome. I think of it as kind of, it's a weak word for me anyway. It reminds me of breakfast cereal. <laughs> the word literally means unwholesome. Literally, some of your Bibles actually translate it this way, rotten. Don't let any garbage, rottenness, corruption out of your mouth. Okay, now, how about you students? You know anybody at school who can't open their mouth without garbage coming out? It's just amazing. And you don't have to be a student, right? I mean, you you got it at work, in the neighborhood. I mean, some people just cannot talk without filth. And, and, and people think it's like normal, acceptable. Some people even think it's... Cool. And the word of God is saying to us, look, this is part, this is part of the corruption of, of the world and the work of the evil one. So if you're going to be, a, if you're a follower of Christ, if he's put new life in you, don't let corruption out of your mouth. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, that it's out of the, out of the mouth, the heart is revealed, right? It's what comes out of your mouth that reveals what's in your heart. That's why you can think you know somebody, and you know somebody really well, and then you move in with them, and then you then after a while, after out of their mouth and in their behavior, you begin to discover what's really in their heart. And that's one of the reasons why marriage is frankly difficult. Because we live with each other. Wouldn't marriage be better if we didn't have to live with each other? I don't know why I said that. So 
focus on the new life and the way of the new life is really about focus on the good of other people, right? So, and that's what this is about. Let the stuff come out of your mouth that is helpful for building others up according to their needs. What, is, what does that imply to you? It implies to you that you, that you, if you are a follower of Christ, you have the Spirit of God living in you, and then you've got people all surrounding you, and what you've got to do as a follower of Jesus, then is you've got to do what Jesus did. You've got to look at other people and submit to their needs. Now, not totally, but you've, you've got to talk. Your speech has got to be a thing that ministers to the needs of other people, that it may benefit those who listen. Does this make sense to you? What if we all did that? I mean, it would be stunning, wouldn't it? Our homes, our families, our relationship with parents, children, you know, friends in the church, in our community, in our small... I mean, just think about it. If the thing that came out of my mouth benefited the other people. The NIV says that it may benefit. Some of your Bibles say, more literally, that it may give grace to those who hear. So Paul is saying, out of your mouth, not garbage. Grace, grace, not garbage, grace. So how are you doing here? What's your talk like, your speech like? And is your speech different at home than it is at work? Is your speech different with your parents than it is at school? Is your speech different in church than it is driving your car? In chapter 4, verse 15, Paul wrote, speak the truth in love. Let me ask you a question. Do you think it's possible to always speak the truth in love? Hmm. I have a dare for you. One day, one 24-hour period where you speak the truth in love, where no garbage comes out, only grace. One day. How about an afternoon? <laughs> I knew you rejected the whole day thing immediately. So how about an afternoon? Right? How about one hour? Like one hour where you, you just commit. Now, that doesn't mean you go around, you know, quoting the Bible and, you know, and you won't say anything because I don't know what to say. Although that's not a bad. Anyway, so... But where you commit yourself for one period of time, whether it was one hour or one afternoon or one day, to not let anything out of your mouth that could be considered not compatible with the new life in Christ, garbage talk, and you just speak grace. There's a few people in our church family, I don't know a lot of you but this well, but there's some people I really know well. And I, and I, could, I could name a few people that, in my experience, have always spoken grace to me. Always. Now, I don't know if Dick Pearson is here today. I don't see him, so let's talk about him. Um, I've known Dick Pearson for 35 years. And every now and then, he, he, he wants to fix me. So, you know, or he, he has something, you know, he's burdened. He's really burdened about prayer, and he knows I'm not as burdened about prayer as he is, and so he's been after me for about 25 years about prayer. So... And he's relentless in a really good way. But this brother has never said one word to me nor written one email to me that isn't full of grace. It is just amazing. I love him. I just love to be around him. You know, 
I know that he doesn't, he isn't perfect, and he doesn't think I'm perfect, and, but this guy just exudes grace, and he has for decades. I want to be like that. What about you? What would people say about you comes out of your mouth? If somebody, if you did a little evaluation, what do you think about my speech and my speech habits? What would people say? That's what this is about. I put in my notes to myself, my speech must be consistent with my spiritual condition. My speech must be consistent with my spiritual condition. Now, what is my spiritual condition? I'm not talking about how good a boy I am. I'm talking about my spiritual condition in, in the terms of chapters 1, 2, and 3, that God in his great grace has brought me and placed me in Christ, that he loved me before I knew him, and that he died and redeemed and saved me, and he, he credited me with the righteousness of Christ. He calls me a saint. This is who I am in his eyes. Now my talk has got to be consistent with who I am. And that's what this is about. How about you? Is your talk, your speech, consistent with who you are in Christ? Let's go on. Verse 30. Never grieve the Holy Spirit. It's so interesting that he puts us right here. Never grieve the Holy Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Notice the word, two words, sealed and redemption. When you first came to Christ, he sealed you with the Holy Spirit. This is the very beginning of your Christian walk. He is the one who actually sealed you with the Holy Spirit and made you a child of God. It's part of being born again. You are sealed with the Spirit of God. you believe it? The other word is the word redemption. This is the word when Jesus comes for you, either in the sky for all of us or comes for you in your death. This is the time of the final finality of your redemption, the fullness of your redemption. This is the end of your walk as a follower of Jesus on this earth. More is coming, the better is coming. But do you see the word sealed in redemption? This is about your whole life as a follower of Christ. And, and what Paul is saying is don't grieve the Holy Spirit from the beginning to the end. And now I'm saying to you, don't grieve the Holy Spirit in a sermon now. You can't grieve a force or an idea or a concept. You can't even grieve a doctrine. But you can grieve a person. And he is the person of God in the presence of his, the Spirit of God. He actually lives within you. What does it mean to grieve him? When, when someone grieves you, they reject you. They do not listen to you. They ignore you. When you say something to them... To them, they don't think you're important. They don't submit to you. So that's what the Holy, grieving the Holy Spirit is. So if the Holy Spirit, like for example, maybe something God was whispering something to you, the Spirit was whispering something to you about anger. And you have managed in the past few minutes to suppress that and say, I'm sure hope somebody else heard that because they need it. But you know you have a problem with anger. And you're just pushing him down. And the problem, of course, is if you do this for a long time, guess what? You can't hear his voice anymore. And he'll have to shout or get out a great big two-by-four to get your attention, which he will do. Do not grieve the Spirit of God. Verse 31 and 32, the sixth thing, reject the harmful. Do what God does. Do what God does. Now comes a list. I don't know about you, but when I read lists in the Bible, I have a tendency to just like go right over them, boom, you know. I just don't even stop and think about the words very much. 
But look at these words. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Bitterness. You know any really sour Christians? I know a few. They just are sour. Sour speech, long faces. You wonder, where's the joy of the Lord here? Right? Just a, There's like a... And, and if you talk to them, they'll say, well, I have reason to be bitter because I've been hurt. And you can't believe, you know, and, and I should have more compassion than I do. We'll get to that. So, but I wonder why, what the world thinks of us if we're bitter, right? Doesn't, doesn't Christ give us what we need in order to overcome the bitterness of life? And I want to say to you, hmm, these are things to put off. Rage. Rage is that outburst, that falling off the handle, you know, throwing stuff. This is, this is explosiveness, the explosiveness of anger, rage. Then comes the word anger, which is more a steady kind of, kind of sullenness and hostility. You've heard the phrase hostile Christians in America? Hostile evangelicals? They're talking about us. Brawling. Brawling. Some people think that's you go to the bar and you get in a brawl. The word brawling there is probably more the, has to do with the idea of shouting. Shouting someone down. Screaming at people. I've been around some Christians who scream at each other. And I think, what? How, how, how can you tolerate that? How can you think that this is Christ-like? This whole thing. Yeah, I mean, the intimidation factor of dads yelling at their small children. I've done it. And I want to tell you, it's sin. This whole brawling thing is really about raised voices. What happens in your home? You yell at each other? There's no place for yelling at each other in the kingdom of heaven. And not as far as I can see. Slander. What is that? That's speaking behind people's back. That's saying negative things about people. It's gossip, slandering people. Just whispering. Did you hear? Some people do it in prayer requests. Every form of malice. Malice is when you wish bad for someone. You wish they'd get hit by a truck. Or something bad would happen to them. Maybe you even plot it. Every form of malice. These are things to put off. And then you notice he says, put these things on. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ in Christ, God forgave you. This is what God did for us, right? Kind. This is a, you know what kind is. It's just simply being loving to people and gentle. It's, it's love that acts lovingly. Compassionate is when somebody's hurt is in your heart and you care about their hurt and so you feel it and you, and you, so you, you care for them. And forgiving is simply acting in grace. In fact, that's what the word literally means. Acting in grace. Where you give someone not what they deserve, but something else. You act in grace. Now I'm asking you the question. Has God been kind to you? Is God, has God been compassionate to you? Has God been forgiving to you? then how can we not with other people? And that's what Paul's saying. You've got to reject it. And which leads us right to like the pinnacle of it all. Look at the next one. This, Imitate God's sacrificial love. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. <clears throat> if you underline in your Bible, be imitators of God. 
Live a life of love. Be imitators of God. Live a life of love. This is the pinnacle. This is the... Well, let me ask you, can you imitate God? Can you imitate God, the creator of all heaven and earth? Can you imitate him? You can't imitate him in his, like, omniscience and omnipotence, can you? But can you imitate his character? Can you imitate his compassion, his mercy, his forgiving, his holiness? Can you imitate his speech? Can you imitate his caring, his long-suffering? I mean, you think about these things. You can imitate God, and that's what Paul is saying to us. Imitate God. Why? Because you are dearly loved children. Parents set an example, and the children imitate the parent. Now you are the child of God, the dearly loved child of God, so you, of course, will imitate your loving Father. Some of you didn't have fathers that were so loving, but you have a loving Heavenly Father. Imitate Him. Imitate Him. Figure out what He's like more and more. Give your life to knowing God, and then imitate Him. How can you do that? Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't get me wrong here on these six things or seven things. If you think this is going to be all about now, now we've been saved by God's grace and so now we just got to work really hard and do the very best we can and put off the old and put on the new and it's all about our self-effort, then, then we've, we've got to go back to chapter 1, 2, and 3 and talk again. Look, it's by the power of the Spirit of God that this happened and it's by the power of the Spirit of God that this happens in our life. So we must depend upon God. You got a problem with anger? You got a problem with lust? You have a, you have a problem with speech? We've got to say, Holy Spirit, help me. And then we probably have to look around a little bit and get some help from each other. What do you do? You li- you're lying? Are you an angry person? What would your family say? about you are you working not to accumulate for yourself but in order to give does your talking your speech tear people down or build people up are you grieving the spirit of God when he talks to you about something are you doing it now have you been doing it this past week where you know he said this deal with this obey this submit to this Are you getting rid of the bitterness and the hurtful things? Are you imitating God? What do you do if God's put his finger on one of these things for you or something else? What do you do? You need help? I want to say to you, that's why community. That's why we love each other. That's why we get together in small groups. That's why we pray together. That's why something like Celebrate Recovery. You want to talk about some people who know something about anger? Go on Tuesday night. Got a problem with anger? They'll help you. Soul care. We've got some people who are committed to soul care. This personal one-on-one of a brother with a brother or sister with a sister who just wants to help you deal with this stuff. Grow. There is help available. You can call one of us, one of the pastors, I love it when somebody comes to me and says, oh, the Lord has gone on me and I need, I need help. What can I do? This is about equipping the saints. So I want to say to you, there is help available. The question is whether or not God has said anything at all to you in this message. And then the second question is, what are you going to do about it? If you 
if you don't do anything about something the Spirit of God has said, is saying to you about these things, then one more time you are grieving the Spirit of God and you're making it easier the next time to do the same. And that is why some of us have anger issues and lust issues and speech issues and stealing issues that have gone on for decades. So I say to you, my brothers and sisters, if God is speaking to you now, then do something about it. And if you're not certain what to do, we will help you. I'm trying to make this as clear as I possibly can because I want you to live the new life. And more importantly, Jesus wants you to live the new life. And everybody around you needs you to live the new life. Don't you think? Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us a new life. How incredible is this? New in Christ, a new creation, born again, life from above. We're grateful. And now you tell us, don't only be grateful, but now live it, walk it, obey it, follow it, submit. Turn away from the old and turn to the new. Well, this is our desire, and I pray that you would give people sitting here the courage now to follow through with what it is you are saying to them to do. I pray that we would have a day like this afternoon, full of grace and truth, full of speech that cares about the people we're with, full of a heart that desires to help others, full of a willingness to be like Jesus and follow him. Lord, will you teach us more and more about the new life? For the glory of Christ we ask. Amen.